Hello, and welcome again to another podcast of The Conservative Historian. This one entitled, Marcus Aurelius, Abdul Aziz, Henry VIII, and Decisions in a Republic. Henry VIII, Tudor King of England in the 16th century, is well known for two things, the creation of the English Church and having six wives. These two aspects of his reign, though, were not mutually exclusive. If Catherine of Aragon, wife number one, had given Henry a brace of sons, would he have broken with the Catholic Church? It was not just the inability of a pope under the thumb of Catherine's nephew, the Emperor Charles V Habsburg, to grant Henry annulments that led to the break. Tudor England was always the third realm of Western Europe, behind the Habsburgs and the Valois of France. In need of money, well, as all kings inevitably are, Henry also coveted the monasterial lands that were, well, his for the taking after the break. Nevertheless, from what we know of Henry's character, I do not believe that he would have taken such a momentous step as a break with Rome had there been, let's say, a possible Henry IX from Catherine of Aragon. The lack of heirs did put Henry in a conundrum. Had he designated a member of one of the more ancient families, such as the Poles, the Percys, or the Howards, that individual would instantly have been a center of intrigue and scheming inherent among a people just 45 years removed from a bloody 30-year conflict known as the Wars of the Roses. But it was also personal for Henry. His wants and desires were intertwined with the state and, from his perspective, were the same. Yet the break with Rome and all that it entailed might benefit the English people in the long run. Henry certainly believed this, or professed as much. In 1532, Henry stated, quote, Well-beloved subjects, we thought that the clergy of our realm had been our subjects wholly, but now we have well perceived that they are but half subjects, and scarce are subjects, for all the prelates at their consecration make an oath to the Pope, clean contrary to the oath that they make to us, so that they seem to be his subjects and not ours. Unquote. Throughout history, there's always been this fusion of the ruler's desires and the needs of the ruled. After two periods of conflict and overthrown emperors, the first in 69 CE, Rome had fallen upon a tried-and-true method of emperor selection, forego blood heirs and adopt the best man for the job. This worked for Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, and Antoninus Pius. Yet the brilliant Marcus Aurelius, his meditations are must-reading, chose to go a different route, anointing his biological son Commodus as heir, to the detriment of the state. Now, in fairness to Commodus, the previous five emperors did not have to deal with the results of the Antonine Plague and the consequences thereof. If you think about what happened recently to the United States and the entire world with the global COVID pandemic. And now imagine something infinitely, 10 times worse than that. And you have the Antonine Plague. But despite that, through many accounts, Commodus was, well, he's probably a terrible ruler and maybe even insane. Again, yet historical context is essential. When Commodus was appointed to positions of authority, Marcus already had a co-ruler who was nine years younger, and it was presumed that this man, Lucius Varys, would succeed Marcus and in turn pave the way until a more experienced, more mature Commodus could succeed. 
but Verres died, and following a revolt by the Roman general in the east, Marcus thought it prudent to elevate his son as co-emperor. But why again his son? It is easy to believe that even Marcus, with all of his stoical detachment, wanted to create a natural dynasty, and thus put his needs above the state. And yet, by ensuring a clear succession plan, and one of the few emperors since the Flavians to actually have a son at hand, was Marcus not servicing the state? And if he had bypassed his natural son, would not Commodus have become a locus for conspiracy and revolt? The same revolts that even uh, a brilliant emperor like Marcus had to endure? So, exactly where did the needs of Marcus or his desires end and the state begin? And... Through much of history, the man, rarely women, was, well, the actual state. Medieval monarchs in the feudal era owned the land and then would grant it to nobles as vassalage. The nobles, in turn, would give land to the peasantry. But again, it wasn't giving land to them. It was really just kind of, well, sort of leasing it, renting it. And in these cases, the nobles, and certainly not peasants, actually owned it. As noted by History.net, quote, the king was in complete control under the feudal system, at least nominally. He owned all the land in the country and decided to whom he would lease the land. He therefore typically allowed tenants he could trust to lease the land from him. However, before they were given any land, they had to swear an oath of fealty to the king at all times. The men who leased the land from the king were known as the barons or the nobles, and they were wealthy, powerful, and had complete control of the land they in turn leased from the king. Unquote. And we do not need to travel that far back in time. Let's say Europe, circa 1000 CE to 1400 CE, or let's say Japan in the 1600s, to see a feudal type arrangement. In fact, what we have is something in the Middle East to look at today. For example, almost all of Saudi Arabia's mineral wealth, their land, is held by the descendants of the founder of Saudi Arabia, Abdul Aziz ibn Saud. Get it? Saud. Saudi Arabia. Ever since Rhodesia got turned into Zimbabwe, the concept of a country being named for a single person or even a family is a bit out of fashion. But we do have Saudi Arabia today. Abdul Aziz died in 1953, but his current successor, King Salman, is personally reputed to be worth nearly $20 billion, but the entire worth of the entire Saudi royal family as holder of Saudi Arabia's wealth is estimated at $1.4 trillion. We consider these historical precedents when addressing the politics of our day. Jim Garrity, writing for National Review, notes with some surprise that a very close election in 2020, yielding a president with only 51% of the vote, a House with a bare six-seat majority, and a tied 50-50 Senate would produce a shoot-for-fences, all-encompassing, transformative, progressive agenda. Quote, Whatever you think of Rudy Giuliani now, the younger mayor of the early 1990s was willing to be utterly hated as he enacted his reforms, convinced that the broader public would look past the controversy and appreciate the effects of lower crime rates. It remains to be seen whether Eric Adams, the newly elected mayor of Gotham, has that same courage to exchange short-term unpopularity 
for long-term improvement in the city's streets, or whether he'll bump up against the city's overton window of what policy changes are acceptable and settle for a series of half-measures. The irony is that we see the same phenomenon in the opposite direction at the national level in Washington. Many progressives interpreted Biden's presidential win, the 50-50 Senate, and the slightly shrunken House majority in the 2020 elections as a mandate to enact sweeping changes in the country, and they're largely hitting brick walls. The national Overton window isn't wide enough to accommodate the wildest fantasies of progressives. The Democrats' big election reform bill is going nowhere. Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico are no closer to statehood. Biden's Supreme Court Reform Commission doesn't appear eager to embrace the idea of expanding the size of the court. And progressives are hoping Stephen Breyer would step down after this recent term. But that doesn't appear likely, at least not yet. Greens are complaining that Biden's environmental proposals offer little to nothing of substance. And you're even starting to hear progressives complain that Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders has gone soft and isn't pushing Biden to the left anymore, unquote. What Garrity misses here is that the progressives did not necessarily believe that the election of 2020 was a mandate to do big, transformative things. Their policies may lack sense and reason, but politically they sometimes make sense. Promising free childcare, free community college, and student loan forgiveness paid for by billionaires makes a potent brew of policy, especially to the progressive base. The actual workings of these things, or whether there are enough billions to pay for it, is beside the point. But that is, is not really the vision of the progressives. Fundamentally, the progressives believe wholeheartedly in their agenda. They believe wholeheartedly in the transformation of America, and what they fundamentally believe in these things is that it will ultimately benefit all Americans. In other words, they know better. In other words, their agenda and the welfare of the state are one and the same, much like Rudy Giuliani believing that lower crime rates and the necessary tactics to achieve those things will end up bringing him popularity and a benefit to all. For the progressives, the opportunity to unify two of the three branches of government was an impetus to try to impose their desires upon the American people, essentially. But of course, many right-wing media platforms, such as Evening Fox News or the AM channels, will tell you this is all about power. And in many regards, they are correct. When a politician complains about the rich and then takes a $6 million book advance as Sanders did, or builds a $15 million mansion on Martha's Vineyard, as Michelle Obama did, I don't believe in their sincerity. But what is often scarier than the power monger is the true believer. There are many among the ranks of the far left, and indeed among their adherents, that truly believe that progressive governance and those laundry list of advanced implementations that I had already mentioned above is necessary for the nation. Or if CRT, critical race theory, for example, were just about the opportunistic money grabbers, you know, like Nicole Hannah-Jones or Imbram X. Kendi, who aren't really sincere about these things, the movement probably would have died a while ago. For all of the press that Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton have acquired, they didn't accrue true power. And yet, CRT is as being imposed in the classroom. And that is because there are many adherents 
mostly white liberals, but some serious black liberals as well, who genuinely believe that CRT is a necessary thing for the good of the people, for the good of the republic. Their belief systems and what they think is is best for the American people are one in the same. There are genuine zealots in the ranks who equate policy with prosperity for the nation. And politically, playing upon this white liberal guilt, actually liberal guilt across the nation, has been a winner and has been for 20 years. And this leads us to a fault line in the republic. I always like to note the difference between a democracy, where the citizens make the calls, and a republic, where citizens choose who makes the calls. When a monarch rules a nation, decision-making certainly becomes easier from the standpoint of policy. However, it should be noted that Henry VIII faced a revolt of northern commoners due to his religious reforms. As much power as he accrued, people did disagree with him. And even monarchs have to answer to somebody. Throughout the history of the Roman Empire, the emperors had to answer to the army. And in the case of Henry VIII, he had to contend with a parliament, especially in the area of taxation. There is no such thing as an absolute ruler. Chinese emperors faced rivals and revolts and had to manage their mandarins. Louis XIV, the Sun King, partly built Versailles to house his nobles in order to keep an eye on their activities and separate them from their traditional feudal levies. And his successor, Louis XVI, learned the limits of absolutism the hard way. America is different. The separations of power, as described above, let's say the separation of what royal authority Henry wielded versus those of his barons and those of the parliament, were understood but not necessarily codified exactly. Knowing the nature of humanity, our founders, our American founders, put in place a written document that delineated the power within the federal government, for example, amongst the three branches, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, and even through the Tenth Amendment, codified the differences between those powers that the federal government would reserve for itself and those of the states. Anything not codified within the federal government was assumed to be to the states. Again, citing the Tenth Amendment. And this begs the question, what do we want from our elected representatives? Remember, our laws are now codified. Our separations of power are, well, supposedly clear. Obviously, there's some blurred lines, but we can refer to the Constitution to understand some of those differences. But one of the key things about our government is also, because we don't have monarchs, we have elected representatives. And the question is, what do we want from them? Whether the American people wish for progressive governance, the progressives are going to try anyway. In one of my favorite movies, Lincoln, something I've cited before, Pennsylvania Representative Thaddeus Stevens, as portrayed by the invaluable Tommy Lee Jones, argues with the president, Abraham Lincoln, over the course of Reconstruction and outlines his role in the Republic as he saw it. Quote, The people elected me to represent them, to lead them, and I lead. You ought to try it. Unquote. And what did Lincoln seek from the people? Why, in short, guidance. Because of Lincoln's use of his War Powers Act, he was often accused of assuming dictatorial authority. Quote, Lincoln said, I decided that the Constitution gives me war powers, 
but no one knows just exactly what those powers are. Some say they don't exist. I don't know. I decided I needed them to exist to uphold my oath to protect the Constitution. Minister of the Interior John Usher responds, It seems to me, sir, you're describing precisely the sort of dictator the Democrats have been howling about. Attorney General James Speed interjects, Dictators aren't susceptible to law. And Usher replies, neither is he, pointing to Lincoln. He just said as much, ignoring the courts, twisting meanings. What reigns him in from, well, from, and Abraham Lincoln interrupting, well, the people do that, I suppose. I signed the Emancipation Proclamation a year and a half before my second election. I felt I was within my power to do it. However, I also felt that I might be wrong about that. I knew the people would tell me. I gave them a year and a half to think about it, and they re-elected me. Stevens, as portrayed in the movie, has a little bit of a different view, one that sits closer to the progressives of today. Shit on the people and what they want and what they're ready for. I don't give a goddamn about the people and what they want. This is the face of someone who has fought long and hard for the good of the people without caring much for any of them. Unquote. An argument could be made that Stevens' attitude was ennobled by his ultimate goals, which history has proven righteous. But note the difference. It was not that Lincoln was averse to leading. Quite the contrary. He's very explicit in that when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, it was leadership. In many regards, he was out ahead of where the people's mindset was at that time. But, and here is the critical difference, it is that he would make his decisions and then let the people decide their value. It is also noted in the movie that had Stevens gotten his way, it was possible the North would have lost the war and the slaves would have been worse off. Sure, Stevens would have stuck close to his values and had lived them and the nation would have been far worse off. Progressives notably pushed forward their agenda in 2009 only to get shellacked in 2010, as Barack Obama put it. And now, today, they are being set up for another drubbing in 2022, and they do not care. They are going to shove everything through this razor-thin majority that they have. Because after all, they believe that the will of the people and history itself is irrelevant They know better. Their agenda is above all. And in no place, no place is this more clearly than in H.R. 1. This is an attempt to gut the Tenth Amendment by taking away a fundamental right of states, and that is to hold elections, something that has been a fabric of this nation for 250 years. They want to federalize it. They want to bring it all to Washington because they know better. But instead of arguing the merits of H.R. 1, the progressives are reverting to fallacies and calumnies to move this forward by comparing the voter rights bills of 17 Republican-run states to voter suppression akin to Jim Crow. The actual provision of these laws is around voter IDs. In states where 85% of the citizens already have driver's license and it takes approximately 30 minutes to get such an ID. There are rules around mail-in ballots. 
Does any sentient person not see the concern about a ballot that is mailed in with no opportunity for an election monitor to see whether the name on the ballot was actually filled in by the real person? And then there's timing. HR1 demands 24-hour voting on election day and an almost limited early voting time frame. Again, does not anybody see that how is this supposed to be monitored? Well, oh, it's going to be monitored from a bureaucrat in Washington? If this incredible right, that of voting, cannot be completed in an 11-hour window, what does that say about our citizenry itself? Ask them to make certain that they can get to the voting place, that they can get there in a timely manner, that they can bring a picture ID. It is about expectations. If you believe in those expectations, the people will rise to the level of those expectations. This debate is not about suppression. It is about integrity. And the integrity of our voting has to be paramount in the mind of every American. And to consider Lincoln's admonition, let's say, what do the people say? According to a Monmouth poll, Four in five Americans, 80%, support requiring voters to show photo ID in order to cast a ballot, with just 18% oppose this. Think about it this, in this divided, polarized nation of America, 80%, if 80% of people agree on anything, that should be the end of the debate right there. I have no idea how this is supposed to be done with mail-in ballots. But again, the, press, the progressives do not care. Their beliefs and the needs of the state itself are one in the same. Not just in presidential years, not just in midterms around Congress, but in every election from the president to representatives on school boards, we have the right, we have the ability, and we have the obligation to go to the ballot box. Not every four years, not even every two, but every single time and cast our vote for our leaders. And we need to distinguish those who think they know better than us from those who will simply bend to anything that the people demand and those who can find the right combination of representation and leadership. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. It is our obligation as citizens to identify within our republic those who will make the decisions. But because that in and of itself is our decision, we have the obligation to put in the work. Sometimes we will need leaders like Stevens, but understand this, the people of Pennsylvania with their influences and desires kept returning Stevens to office. He could have accomplished nothing without the people of Pennsylvania electing him. As much as he noted he was leading, he was only in that position at the behest of those pulling the levers. This whole thing, this whole republic, this whole American experiment is so much messier in some ways than simply having a, a Henry VIII declare that his church no longer answers to Rome. To have a king, Solomon, declare that this or that law is Saudi law. Or have Marcus Aurelius simply decide who is going to succeed him. He'll just name it. We don't have to worry about all the messiness of elections and politicians and going to vote and the research that is necessary. Fine, just have Marcus decide who it is. And then don't be surprised when a Commodus pops up. 
for 250 years and innumerable successes. This system has worked better than any monarchy ever did, and it works for all Americans today, despite what you might see on Twitter, on social media, or on CNN. Voting is our legacy and our obligation, and it will work as long as we do not screw it up. Thank you for listening to this latest Conservative Historian podcast. My name is Bell Amos.